This is the Hack the Future podcast, the human stories behind courage, purpose, and imagination. Join your host, Terrence Mowry, who will guide you on the journey of reimagining the world as we know it. When the world changes, we need to change too. Today, I'm delighted to meet Professor Dave Ulrich to explore what's new and what's next in the future of work, leadership, and talent. From HR, GPT, and return on intelligence, to augmented talent and workforce ecosystems, HR and business leaders must shift from a wait-and-see mindset to an explore-and-disrupt one. Of course, this is exhilarating and frightening, but it's also a call to reflection and a call to action. Dave Ulrich, welcome to Hack the Future. How are you today? What a beautiful and wonderful day, Terrence. I'm so honored to join you today. I'm so excited about this and uh, have followed your work for some time and just always want to learn from it and with it. So thank you so much. The feeling is absolutely mutual. And I think today we're going to give our audience the equivalent of a double espresso or a spiced pumpkin latte to uh, shake up mindsets and say goodbye to the status quo. <laughs> we'll see. I uh, I hope we can all live in the future. So Yes. There seems to be so much negativity out there at the moment. I came across a new word, meta-anxiety, which means anxiety about anxiety. And we have perma-crisis, polycrisis, predictably unpredictable. What does it take for an organization to succeed in this world of perma-crisis? And I appreciate that's quite a big question, but uh, please give me any framing behind that. Um, well, first of all, it's fun to see people create language that helps us <laughs> translate what the future, the word is probably the way to start. Think of three buckets. Bucket one is the context, what's happening outside. Yes. And, and, and we can list that. We've all seen it. Uh, one dominant technology. It's amazing. And I bet you've seen it as well. Chat GPT, open AI is now six months old, almost everywhere I go. How yes. many have done it? 80%. I mean, it's just the, the diffusion of technology. The, the, the demographics are changing around the world, employee expectations, realistic people about people stuff. The, the pace of change is just unbelievable, partly due to that technology. Regulation influencing how we live, how we work. Mm. Uh, just an enormous amount of change, intangible value as companies. So that context, Somebody said context is the kingdom. Content is the king or the queen. It's, yeah, I love that. So I start with context. What's the outside world that is real? And yes. we need to be aware of that. We can't hide from it. The, mm. the COVID crisis set a context that we're all aware of. Mm. The next box is, so what are the assumptions of work that we need to change? Mm. How does that context change the way we think about work? Mm. And then the third box is, what does that mean for the way we manage our organization and people? Mm. So if you say for a meta framework, think outside in, what's yes. the context, what are the assumptions, and what does that mean about organization and mm. people? Now I could dive into any of those very detailed, but but that's kind of the meta framework, context, assumptions, actions. And it reminds me of a quote by the psychologist Daniel Kahneman, who said, often we are blind to our own blindness, we're blind to our own blind spots. What would you say are some of the big blind spots impacting CEOs and CHROs in relation to that framework? Uh, one blind spot is the context. We assume the future is built on the past. We love Most futurists love to do linear progressions, A, B, C, D. Well, it's not A, B, C, D. It's A, B, C, X, M, Q. 
Yes. And and sometimes I think a blind spot is the future is just a linear progression from the past, that mm. the context is static. Yes. Nobody could have predicted COVID and nobody can predict some of the political malaise. Um, we can't predict are we going to have inflation or deflation? The uncertainty is rampant. Mm. And I think that blind spot of, of assuming we know the future gets in our way. Mm. To me, that's one of the first assumptions when I think in that framework, uh, yes. we have context of changing. For me, the first assumption is to learn to harness uncertainty, not by chasing it. Yes. Um, and let me give an example of that. I, I was working with a, a, a leader who had uh, two sons, mm. 18 and 20. Do you know where they're going to go to school? No. Do you know who they're going to marry? No. Do you know where they're going to study? No. <laughs> and I, I could keep doing the no's. <laughs> we don't know the future. So yes. what do you know about your children? Mm. And the man stopped and he said, I will always love them. And I said, stop and think about what you just said. In a world of uncertainty, don't chase the uncertainty. Let me predict what my kids are going to do. Mm -hmm. In a company, let me predict, are we going to have inflation, deflation, global growth or global recession? Mm -hmm. Are we going to have a, a new industry? Are we going to be merged? Are we going to be acquired? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So what do I know for sure? Mm -hmm. I think that question is so critical for people. It's a powerful question. Um, it, it, it is for me a, a blind spot and an assumption. Don't chase uncertainty, focus on certainty. What do I know? And it reminds me of something that Jeff Bezos said a, a number of years ago when he was starting Amazon. He said, the question that nobody asks is, what are we certain about? We're certain that if we create value for our customers, they will come back and be loyal and will grow a business. We're certain that if we personalize the employee experience, they're probably, probably going to be more, uh, more attention and more uh, value creation on the inside. So I think it's such an important takeaway for our listeners, which is we're obsessed with uncertainty, but why don't we focus and prioritize what we're certain about? I love that at a personal level as well. I had not heard that quote from Bezos. What a great, a great, I mean, that's probably, I heard it and stole it, but, uh, <laughs> but what a, about a year and a half ago in the middle of COVID, I was uncertain. Am I going to keep doing this? Am I going to keep doing that? I'm going to travel. I'm going to say all this uncertainty. And after about a week of obsessing, I finally thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. We started our conversation. Are you going to travel? Are you going to do this? Are you going to write a new book? I don't know. So what am I certain about? I'd love to ask you. Yes. What are you, Terrence, certain about? I can share mine and I'll let you think about yours. Here's mine. I am certain that I'm going to learn. That's actually, for me, an interesting certainty. Yes. And I'm going to learn in a way that I hope will help others learn better. Mm. So I'm curious about you. In this, We don't know what we're going to do. Are we going to be in Riyadh? Are we going to be in Santiago? Are we going to be in Australia? Are we going to be in Seoul? Mm. I don't know where I'm going to be. I don't even know the book I'm going to write next. But what am I certain about? What would you say? I mean, wow, it's such a powerful question that everybody should be reflecting on. For me, it's I'm certain that curiosity beats conformity. I'm certain that speak up uh, beats silence. I'm certain that certainty of purpose is a clarifier and a simplifier and an energizer. It cuts through the noise and helps to separate the signal from the noise. And I'm certain that if you fall in love with problems, you're probably going to be more innovative. Um, so you know, these are some it. certainties that I'm using as a compass right now. I love it. And no matter what happens, we don't know. We Politically, don't know. we don't know who's going to get elected. Socially, we don't know what the next social agenda will be. But when you say those things, I'm going to speak mm. up. I'm going to be curious. Wow. That then is a, a guiding light, whatever you want to call it. Yes. And an organization can do the same thing. Your example of Amazon is great. We are certain we're going to serve customers. 
Okay, that's useful. Yes. Anyway, I love that idea in this. And you ask about blind spots. Yes. That's a blind spot. People are mm. focusing on uncertainty, not certainty. Mm. It's And it really strikes me that many leaders today listening will empathise with this, uh, this challenge, which is we're trapped in the certainties of the past and the possibilities of the future. There's a sort of stage of liminality, which creates risk and opportunity. And I wanted to uh, sort of share a quick story with you. I met a 100-year-old lady recently who loves to learn. And at the age of 83, she decided to have a family meeting and she told the family that she wanted to study English literature at university because she was born in 1923, where the odds of a woman going to university were zero. And you'd think this would be the end of the story. But once you activate that certainty, certainty around learning, certainty around purpose, certainty around meaning, it's unstoppable. And when I met her at the age of 100, I said, what's the biggest takeaway that I can learn from you today? Two of the biggest regrets in our life are lack of boldness and lack of connection. And for me, that really resonated that actually, you know, the regret of inaction always outweighs the regret of action. Yeah, you know, you said you're certain about speaking up. That's the that's the non-regret of action. I'm going to speak up, and I may make a I may make a mistake. Okay, but I was bold. I was clear about where I'm going. I love her example. Uh, I hope she was able to pass that on to the next generation. Yes. So that her her progeny has some of the same set of values. Yes. Uh, to me, that's the assumption. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in the context. The assumption is certainty and uncertainty. You used another word that I'm going to tag real quick. Mm. Personalization. Yes. I think that's one of the assumptions of our future. Mm. Uh, everybody says, what's going to happen to the employee? And it's and the answer is, it really varies. We got that during COVID. Yes. Um, everybody had a different experience. We mm. had three children. Uh, in one case, our daughter quit her job to take care of her kids. In another case, our son lived a very traditional lifestyle. In another case, they jointly managed. My wife and I lived in a reasonably nice area. We weren't we weren't ill treated, whereas many people were. So I think that personalization, which mm. is personal care and then incredible flexibility. Yes. I think we're going to see more of that. I think we'll see more inside out. Yes. Um, there's a lot of debate. Are we going to be hybrid or not? And my answer is that's the wrong question. Mm. The right question is no matter where you work in a studio in London, in an office in the United States, in, a, in an apartment in Santiago, what are you going to do to create value for a customer? Mm. To me, the question is not where you work or how you work. It's what you work on and why you work. And mm. so to, to, to our listeners for, the, for this session, are you helping yourself and your employees figure out why they're working? What are they doing to create value for someone else? That's the inside out assumption. Mm. And how do you take care of them personally? Tailor the job to what works for them and to the company. Anyway, that's I got to get my final bullet in. I have four assumptions, uncertainty, yes. personalization, inside out. And the fourth one is paradox. Mm. Be willing to live in a world of duality. Yes. I think that's going to be one of the assumptions of the future. Are we going to be long term or short term? Mm. Yes. Anytime you hear anyone doing a talk from to change the language. And also yes. we're going from people to technology. Mm. Yeah, it's and also. And everything we do is the navigation of this inherent tension or paradox. So those are my assumptions of the future. And I think certainty and uncertainty inside out connect to the value we create for others 
paradox and personalization. This is a great framework that our listeners can reflect on and actually benchmark, benchmark themselves against in terms of strengths, but also potential blind spots. What's keeping CHROs awake at night right now? We know that attention is the new oil. We, we know that they're having to navigate all of these different paradoxes, balancing humor maximization versus profit maximization, for example, uh, belonging, becoming, believing. What are, what's keeping CHOs around the world awake in, term of, in terms of two or three big issues? I think the headline is that HR is no longer about HR. HR is about creating value for a group of stakeholders. Yes. And so what keeps me awake is what am I doing as an HR person to create value for stakeholders, not just the employee? And I get frustrated that HR is about people. No, And yes, that's true. But it's also about the culture. It's about the leadership. It's about doing things inside our firm that create value for stakeholders, both inside and out. Mm. Are the investors getting more value today because of what I did? Are the customers getting value? Are, this, are the communities getting value? And so for me, the headline is, what are we doing to create value for the multiple stakeholders who the organization has to serve. Mm. And this reminds me of your lifelong mentor, Bono Ritchie, who said, organizations don't think, people do. You know, I just smile when you think of Bonner. He's a guy, I was on my way to law school as a student decades ago. And he came in and he said, this class in organizational behavior, quick, quick anecdote, you tell me what you learn about organizations that shape your lives and write a paper, read books, go to class. I wrote a 10 page paper for 15 weeks, 15 of them. Something that Josh Burson said recently, which is look at AI potentially as a co-pilot to augment what we do. And I mean, that's a debate for many leaders to think about today listening in, which is, are we looking at an augmented future or an automated future? And I, recently, I don't think yeah, AI do gives think? us the future. Yes. I'm going to push. I yes. don't think AI necessarily gives us the future. I think it gives us a great distillation of the past. It's a little bit like predictive analytics. It got hot a few years ago. Mm. Let's go do analytics to figure out what succeeded in the past. Mm. Well, look where we started. And you're the futurist. Who am I talking to? ABC. It's not D. It's ABCF. It's ABCZ. And, and AI can't go to the Z and the D and the F as well as, as, as the past. So um, I, I love AI. I love the metaphor. It's a co-pilot. It's an enabler. Yes. But don't become so dependent. I mean, it, it, my mother got me into college by selling world book encyclopedias. <laughs> Fantastic. Today we have Google. Yes. I've Googled stuff. I've done Bing search. It's so much more powerful. That's what AI is going to do. And, and, I don't know how my kids are going to judge good good papers from bad papers, but um, but AI takes away some of the drudgery of the past. Yes, but it doesn't have a value set, and the future has got to be based on values. It's what we're certain about, not just based on linear past. And I know the value of values is a, a cornerstone of your work and research. It seems like even job titles are being disrupted right now. I recently came across head of uncertainty at the Department of Trade, Head of Uncertainty and Scenarios. Another job wow. title. Another job title. I haven't seen that. That's cool. <laughs> this is a great So Head of Uncertainty and Scenarios, Director of Disruption, who confessed to me her job title was as popular as a funeral director, and uh, <laughs> Distraction <laughs> Prevention Coach, which I think we could all do with one of those. 
you know, here's my takeaway. If you get hung up on titles, you're going to get hung up on the wrong stuff. It's yes. uh, people say, oh, change the name human resources. I, I, yeah, that's fine. I'm not as worried about title as I am about. So what are you doing with that? And I love disruption, uncertainty. Yeah, those are the issues of the future. What you call yourself is not as critical, but yes. um, it's exciting to see what that future looks like. And it's really exciting to see HR is not about HR. It's about creating value for other stakeholders. Mm. The second exciting thing, HR is not just about people. That's one of the issues I get frustrated. We're here to build the employees where the people function. Mm. I think we have a commitment to people, but we also have a commitment to the organization. Mm. And in the research we've seen mm. over and over again, it's not just your people, talent, individual competence, workforce. It's your organization. Mm. It's your culture. It's your team. It's your capability. It's the workplace. Mm. And so HR and I'm, I shouldn't say this about HR. Yes. I think HR is so critical. It's not just going to be done by HR people. This is going to be done by business leaders, by investors, by customers. Do you have the right people? Do you have the right organization? Do you have the right leadership? Yes. That's my topology. And um, that creates value for customers and investors. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's an exciting space to play. Um, that I think shapes what the future might begin to behold. I recently caught up with Jeff, Jeff Schwartz, who's the author of a book called Work Disrupted. He's a, a partner at a company called Gloat, a tech startup looking at talent marketplaces, workforce ecosystems. What's your take on this, this trend towards workplace at workforce ecosystems, skills visibility, moving talent closer to value creation, internal mobility? I saw a statistic, for example, that after money, one of the biggest reasons why people leave the door, walk out of the door, is a lack of internal growth opportunity. I love Schwartz's stuff. I've read it. I, with you, we'd endorse it. It's, I, aren't we, isn't it great to be in a choir of great voices? It I really mean, is. This field it's... is just filled with a choir of incredible voices who are different. We have sopranos, altos. I think I'm off key, but we have voices <laughs> that allow us to be effective. Um, I'm going to go back to the word that you used that I picked up on personalization. Yes. How do you personalize a work experience? And the ecosystem is the part of the setting in which personalization occurs. Mm. What we're finding is there's a common set of values that most people tend to want. We've, I love simplicity. Uh, my yes. PhD is in tax, numerical taxonomy, uh, which is, if anybody knows what that is, they should get, uh, they should have an extra drink tonight. <laughs> but it's the science of simplicity through statistics. Mm. In all the work I've seen around personalization and, and building with people, there are four things people seem to want. Be safe. That's Amy Edmondson. Psychological safety, physical safety. Yes. Believe, have a purpose, mm -hmm. become, learn and grow, mm -hmm. and belong, be connected. When we can give somebody what they need in those four areas, be safe, believe, become, and belong, mm -hmm. then we can create an organization that allows somebody to get what they need and want from their organizational experience. Mm -hmm. And when we create that, that's the stuff Jeff Schwartz is talking about. We create an organization where people thrive mm -hmm. because believe, be, uh, uh, be safe, believe, become and belong, become yes. the, the, the cornerstones, if you will, mm -hmm. or the foundation, whatever metaphor you want, mm -hmm. of creating an organization that works for people. And I hope we can, uh, we can see more of that. Good companies are doing it. Yes. They're doing it. Following on from that, I, I recently had a conversation with Michele Zanini, ex-McKinsey. He co-wrote an amazing book called Humanocracy with Gary Hamill. 
And in the book, they talk about BMI, not body mass index, bureaucratic mass index. This idea that the average BMI score, so too many processes, too many protocols, too many meetings, too many routine ways of work, um, it becomes a kind of performance killer, an innovation killer, and it's a tax on human potential and future potential. And I wanted to get your take as you go around the world. Do you see uh, evidence of high BMI and what can our listeners today do to reduce that in terms of fighting complexity, not with complexity, but like you say, with simplicity? I love Gary Hamill's work. I love the the work Gary's done. He uh, he and I had a common mentor, C.K. Prahalad, ah, yes. who I think was one of the uh, all-time geniuses in this field. Yes. Um, bureaucracy exists. I, I've got to make a statement here. We talk about uh, holacracy, bureaucracy. Mm. There's a history of this. I think we not only need to create the future, we need to understand the past and build on it. Yes. We did work um, in the 90s and in the 2000s about getting rid of bureaucracy. And I agree, bureaucracy is a horrible tax. We found that people spent sometimes up to 40 to 60% of the time on bureaucracy. Let's give you the tool, it's really simple. Mm -hmm. Reports, approvals, measures, meetings, policies, ramp, mm -hmm. reports, approvals, major meeting, policies, processes, get rid of them, mm -hmm. get rid of them. We found that 25 to 30% of reports were never looked at, so <laughs> don't do it approvals. Every time you had more than four people doing an approval, the quality went down. Mm. If you have 10 people doing an approval, the first few people sign it because somebody senior is going to look at it. The ninth and 10th people say, well, they signed it, so I'm going to sign it. Well, stop. Don't do that. Meetings. Kill meetings. Processes. Anyway, I think the bureaucracy work that Gary and Michelle talked about is just exceptional. And go back and get rid of it. Expose mm. it. Make it transparent. Mm. Get rid of it. We did that in a program called Workout. It's an old program from General Electric. Mm. Um, versions of it have been played out. We built that on other programs. Mm. And I hope today that we get rid of it. Organizations, and this is Gary Hamill's line that I love. If yes. you don't change as quickly in inside your firm as the market outside, you will cease to exist. Yes. I think and, it, uh, yes, it really hits the spot. And it reminds me of some work I did recently with a biopharma company that declared war on complexity. And Google have declared the year of simplicity. Meta, Facebook have declared the year of uh, the year of efficiency. Uh, and, and this idea that crushing bureaucracy uh, in an intelligent way, acting at the speed of the customer, sharpening the purpose and trust agenda. What's your take on this idea of unlearning? because there's a lot of focus on learning and we're suffering from almost cognitive shock of uh, 480 minutes is just eight hours. And the research coming out of the Microsoft Work Index, for example, recently said that 66% of folks said they didn't have enough time or energy or cognitive bandwidth to do their most important work in the day. And what's your take on, as we continue to evolve and learn and grow, as a as a, CR, a CHRO or a business leader, what should be some examples of systematic unlearning? Mindsets, ways of working, attitudes, assumptions. Yeah, I think one of the things we've got enamored with is resilience, learning, and almost all of those look backward. A resilience overcome your past. Are you learning from the past? Now, you need to look back, but I think we need to anticipate a future. And again, it's not linear, A, B, C, M. Um, and zigzag. How do we be, yeah. How do we zigzag? How do we begin to identify what an unknown future is? And then with some degree of certainty, 
try things. I love learning. I was in a company. We came up with a very simple mantra. Think big. That's think of the future. Test small. Go try something. Zigzag. Fail fast and learn always. And if you can get that kind of spirit in your mind, think big. What's the aspiration out there in the unknown future? Mm-hmm. Go try it. Yes. Go do an experiment. Don't don't build a 20-page process document. Go test it. Fail. That's the one that most companies don't do very well. It didn't work. Okay. So what did I learn? Mm-hmm. And build that cycle of repeated learning. And, and, and we think that's the, the agility message is just that. Focus on the future. Anticipate opportunity. Learn. Fail fast. And speed. Go quickly. And to those who learn the fastest, they're going to be the successful ones because they've adapted more quickly than others. I love what you're saying. And it really reminds me of some recent conversations with Amy Edmondson and Rita McGrath, where they talk about different types of failure. So intelligent failure, for example, they talk about as the ratio of assumptions to knowledge increases, we need to experiment more to to reduce that. And they talk about return on intelligence. So ROI, not just return on investment, but sort of new human metric for a post uh, AI world, return on intelligence, return on integrity, love, return on imagination. I love, I love it. Return on invention, return on innovation, return on intelligence. The I we use is return on intangibles because in the market today, and again, I love to think outside in. That begins to yes. be one of my, the value of values. Um, quick, quick story. I'm doing a talk at one of the big tech companies, hundred people in the room, 70 of them have PhDs and stuff. I don't know if you've ever been intimidated. I am totally intimidated. Yes, a lot. They're physics, science, computer science. And I think, how are they going to listen to me? I have a mate, my undergraduates in English. I get a college degree by reading books. <laughs> so I started with the following. What do these companies have in common? Digital equipment, Compaq, Eastman Kodak, Enron, Toys R Us. And somebody yelled out, they all failed. And I yelled right back at him. And I consulted for every one of them. <laughs> Brilliant. And they stopped and said, oh, and I said, and let me tell you what I learned. They all focused inside out. Every one of those companies were iconic in their day, but yes. they didn't look outside to anticipate a future. Mm. I'm here to help your company not do good work, but to do work that the future will appreciate. And that's the experiment. That's the testing. We're coming to our final five minutes. And I have such a, a strong sense of vitality having this conversation with you. And a lot of the talks that I'm working on right now with organizations around the world are around sharpening the reimagination agenda. Because there's a paradox of executing or performing for today while transforming or reimagining for tomorrow. And at the cornerstone of that is this idea of scalable curiosity to learn, but also the courage to unlearn clarity to focus and the conviction to decide. One of the big observations I've taken away and I wanted to share it with you and our our listeners is we always overestimate the risk of trying something new and underestimate the risk of standing still. Yeah, I love the. First of all, let me just say to every listener, get to Terrence's talk because you're going to get reimagination. Do you ever ever say things in talks that you haven't thought through all the way? All the time. Um, I'm, I'm curious your rule of thumb. My rule of thumb is every year, and I teach at the University of Michigan, so I have a, a program in July. Uh, you know, I just had a program for those listening in September. What percent of my notes are new this year? Which is an, actually an interesting test. What's the unlearning? What's the what's the half life of knowledge, if you will? My rule of thumb is 15, 15 to 25% a year. Hmm. And you say, well, that's not much. That's pretty tough. Significant. Because there are some people in our field, you can tell time 
by the joke they said. I yes. mean, because they it's have the repeat. same script to talk. It's a total repeat. What that means is when I give talks, they have 20% new stuff every 12 months. I make stuff up. And I tell people, I'm going to make up 10 to 20% of what I'm teaching today. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I'm going to do that experiment. Does this work? I love the idea of reimagination. Yes. I love the idea of reinvention and, and creating what's next. The next 12 months are exactly. the best 12 months. Yes. Um, Marty Seligman, and I hope you'll have a chance and your listeners to, to, to recognize him. He did the positive psychology, the father of that entire movement that everybody's built on. He is now looking at hope. And he says, when you think about hope, there's three things you think about. Efficacy. If I work hard, will I get the outcome? Optimism. Do I see what's good, not what's bad? That's focus on the future. And then third, imagination. Can I recreate? Can I invent? I love that idea of hope that the next 12 months, and I don't even know what they're going to be yet, yes. will give me a sense of hope that creates value for others. And this is a, I think this is a great practical question, an aspirational question, a mind-shifting question, a hope-filling question that our listeners can think about, which is, what are the boldest future success headlines we want written about us in the next 12 months? Oh, and are we writing them? What are the mindset shifts, the behavior shifts, the milestones? And are we activating those today? And this is a great takeaway, I think, for our listeners today. I, I love the question. When we work on culture or personal brand or leadership brand, the question is, what do you want to be known for by your key stakeholders in the future? And that question, it moves culture from an internal set of values. People write an article, toxic culture is bad. And I'm going, it took you an article to write that? I mean, give me a break. Of course, toxic culture. But what do you want to be known for yes. by those who use your services in the future? Terrence, what do you want to be known for? That's a great, to me, that's a great reflection question. Mm. I want to be known for somebody who has ideas with impact. Yes. And for me, I think my definition on reflection and, and really thinking in the moment right now would be somebody who helped people find the upside of disruption. I love it. I love it. I love it. And then you say, given that future identity, remember the future is where the we, we have ideas that create the future and, and then you fold them back into the present. That's a CK Prahalad note. Yes. You anticipate the future and then fold it into the present. If, if I want to, people to do optimism about disrupting their identity, what do I need to do today? What can I do more of? What can I do less of? And, and it's zigzag. You're going to fail. You're going to succeed. But I love that idea of anticipating what that future might hold. I love the idea that you said reimagination. I'm, I'm in the process right now of trying to reinvent human capability. Yes. It's so critical to build people and organization. Mm. Back to my mentor, Von Ritchie, not just people, but organization and leadership. How do you reinvent that so that an investor gets value, so that a customer gets value? Mm. And it's not about the quick fix. We need to worry about how, where you work. Are you going to use technology? Yeah, that's fine. But it's really reinventing what that future might look like. Yes. That's where I think um, my passion is. And, uh, and sometimes I make mistakes. I miss it. I just miss stuff. It's not that I will I'll miss a lot of stuff. But I hope we can learn and unlearn. So, so what gives you optimism about the future? You're, you're an eternal optimist. I've seen your work and I encourage people to, to not only read your work, but, but visit your sessions. What gives you optimism? Uh, I recently uh, worked with an 18 year old student who her grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, a, a terrible affliction of impacting 100 million people a year. But she's super smart, super visionary and somebody who makes things happen. She created an app 
called Timeless. She's just received over a million dollars of investment at the age of 18. And Timeless utilizes AI, geotagging, facial recognition to help those with Alzheimer's stay connected to self, to, to feel part of the family. And so for me, when I hear stories of that, it gives me incredible uh, hope uh, and optimism about the future. You know, wouldn't it be neat? And and I was we worked in companies around the world. The ultimate agenda for a business leader is, are you creating a future that your children and grandchildren will be delighted to live in? So what I hear from you, Terrence, is I want to do things to reimagine the world so that that seven-year-old niece, when she's 18, will have the opportunity to create a future that works for her. That is personal. It may be an app. It may be whatever she chooses. And if, and if I mean, I feel that we have grandkids and I want to begin to create a future setting. That's the context where we started, mm. where the next generation will have opportunities to fulfill their potential. Yes. And if we can create that through our words today, the words and the images, the theory of the future then folds back into the practice of the present. And mm. I'm hoping that that seven-year-old niece may not even appreciate that my uncle Terrence created a setting <laughs> and I'm now in a company that his ideas have shaped. I think that's really cool. It's really cool. And that really excites me and, and leads me to a final question, which is all around legacy. Uh, Clayton Christensen, the late Clayton Christensen at Harvard spoke about, you know, the measure of a good life. And Peter Drucker were incredible uh, contribution over a, lo a long lifespan. What does a good legacy look like for you, Dave? My simplest test of leadership, and I'm going to go back to, I love statistics, I love math, I love all that stuff. Does someone leave an interaction with you as a leader feeling better or worse about themselves? It's the simplest test in the world. It's an it's intuitive test. Cut. I'm leaving this interaction with you for the last 35 or 40 minutes feeling better about myself. I hope people will say, when I interacted with Dave, I felt better about myself. That's, and I don't know what that means because it's going to be different things. I mean, but can we, can we do things as individuals so that when you leave an interaction, you feel better? And that's easy and good news. Wow, you're so smart. But even in bad news, can you share data that, that allows people to feel better about themselves? Yes. That's a legacy I hope I leave, that people feel better about themselves by looking at the ideas. It reminds me of a, a process of lobsters that go through exodysis, where they have to break out of their shell every few years, and they have to show courage and vulnerability at the same time. They feel uncomfortable in a small shell, they have to break out of it, but then they grow. And I think if I could be a little, a little bit like a lobster and help, help others grow and break out of their shells. Moving, moving sideways, I think they <laughs> By the way, I've got to share with you. I got a page of notes. I'm not sure if people are seeing this or hearing it, but I got a page of notes same from as, my, same, uh, same as me, Dave. my lessons from Terrence. Same as um, me. And uh, disrupt, imagine, reimagine. Uh, uh, thank you. I'm uh, not just feeling better about myself. I'm, I'm having some ideas that are going to help me to pause and hopefully translate those ideas into practice. What a delight. Dave, thank it's you. been an absolute thank you for your good works. Great work. Dave, it's been doing. an absolute pleasure to have you on my show today, Hack the Future. I've loved uh, our time together. And I know that uh, it's not the end. It's not the beginning of the end, but it is the end of the beginning. That's the great <laughs> Churchill quote. Great Churchill quote. Love I look it. forward thank to you, next Thomas. time. Thank you. Take care, Dave.